Our reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, starting in verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Welcome to ECC. It's great to see so many faces again. Uh, Thank you again for those of you who are tuning in online. You're just as important. We understand that you can't be here for whatever reason, and we respect that. But just thank you for tuning in, and thank you for being here. Last week would have been on, under normal circumstances, Communion Sunday. So some of you, especially those of you who were online last week, which was all of you, you may have been ready for communion. The reason we chose not to do it is because we were anticipating today. We wanted to make sure as many people as possible were with us when we uh, chose to partake in communion, so we will do that today. I want to give you a little bit of uh, freedom. If you haven't picked up your little communion cup with your wafer back at the back, As I preach, I will not be offended if you get up and move to the back and pick up your communion packet, okay? That'll be just fine, because we really do want you to participate with us in communion. Yes, we do start a new series today, and it's called Perspectives. I want you to think about this for a moment. Suppose you were trying to understand who a person was, an individual that you may have an acquaintance with, but not really know, or perhaps it's someone you don't really know at all, a public figure, or maybe even a historical figure. But you'd like to get to know the essence of that individual. I'd suggest that probably several things would happen as you consider that task of knowing. First, you'd probably want to know from the perspective of a husband or a wife, what that individual was like. If you wanted to know all about them, you'd want to know as many perspectives as possible. So if you want to know me, I would disinvite you to talk to my wife because it may not be as good as I am publicly. No, that's kind of a joke, okay? It's true, but it's a joke. You might want to talk to the individual's children because they would have a perspective on this individual, right? Either as a father or a mother. And that would be a unique perspective. Not one that was wrong, but one that was different from the wife or the husband. Or perhaps you would like to know from that person's siblings who that person was. You'd get different descriptions, wouldn't you? 
not necessarily inaccurate, but different. Or perhaps you'd like to know from this individual's colleagues who he or she was, or friends. Or if this individual had a large group of followers who were completely devoted to him or her, you'd want to know what the followers thought of the individual. Public and private. All those perspectives are important to understanding an individual. And when we approach the Gospels, called the Good News Concerning Jesus Christ, we have, in effect, four perspectives. Four perspectives on who Jesus was, what he did, what was important about his identity. There are all kinds of perspectives that run through all the Gospels. But I've chosen for the next month to highlight each of the Gospels and the what I'll consider to be, and I hope you understand to be, their primary emphasis. So, for instance, routinely when scholars look at the Gospel of Matthew, they see the primary emphasis as being the proclamation of Jesus as King or Messiah. There's lots of other things Matthew says, but that seems to be chief among them. That's the title of the sermon. In order to evaluate Uh, the Gospels, you have to evaluate whether or not the Gospels are reliable, reliable accounts. You might want to ask whether the Gospels are authentic, a little different than reliability. You might also ask whether or not the Gospels contradict one another. You might ask whether or not the Gospels were written by the names that are on the title of the gospel. So I, without going through all the details of those things, I want to tell you two things that are my perspective on the gospels. I don't expect that everyone would agree, but I do want you to understand I don't come to these considerations lightly nor do I come to them without an extensive amount of study from both sides. My primary theological education suggested that the Gospels were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. My primary theological education suggested that the Gospels were not just perspectives, they were actually in conflict with one another. I don't agree. I wrestled with that issue for at least the space of three intensive years. And I came away absolutely convinced that the Gospels were written by the people whose names they bear. And I came away absolutely convinced that those Gospels did not contradict one another. They gave unique perspectives on the same thing. If you're interested in more about that, those of you who are kind of academic egghead sorts, right? You want to deal with that kind of thing, I can always recommend books to you. Or I'm happy to talk about it with you if you wonder why I've adopted this particular perspective on the Gospels. But I thought it would be best for you to understand that to begin with. 
Now here's what I want to say about the Gospel of Matthew. Written, I believe, by Matthew. Or often called Levi the tax collector. Here's what I see as some of the major themes in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not all the themes. Others would say I left something out, and I understand that. But I had to choose. And I've got a limited amount of time. Theme number one is the biggest theme. Probably the most agreed to theme. And that is Matthew is saying in unequivocal terms that Christ is the king, the promised Messiah. He says that in a way that the other gospels do not. The other gospels say it, but not with the same emphasis as Matthew. When Matthew opens his gospel, he begins with the genealogy. Unlike, say, for instance, the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark, he begins with a genealogy, and it's clear what he's trying to emphasize in his genealogy. He's trying to emphasize that Jesus is the royal king. He emphasizes that he's from the line of David. He emphasizes that he's the Jewish royal king, the Messiah. He begins with Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation. And he delineates this in a very particular fashion, it seems, especially for a Jewish audience. It seems to be clear that Matthew was written for a Jewish audience more than any other. Not exclusively, because there's Gentile references, no doubt. But it seems especially clear that he was emphasizing it for a Jewish audience. But right at the beginning of the gospel, remember what we talked about last week? Right near the beginning of Matthew's gospel, there's this odd entrance of people who are mysterious and unknown. People who are not Jewish at all. People, except for their scholarship, know nothing about Messiah and what it means. Into the story enters these people called the Magi, or the wise men. And who were they? They were Gentiles. Gentiles, who would have been scorned by the lineage of David. They would have been looked down upon by the people that Matthew was writing to. He enters these magi. And what do those magi do? They look for a king. And when they found the king, they kneeled down, brought him kingly gifts, and they worshiped him. So Matthew sets the stage for us right at the beginning. This is the son of David, royal line. You Jewish believers who are listening to me, remember that connection. And you Gentile believers who are walking into this, remember the Gentile magi who acknowledged him as king, this royal blood of David. But there's something else about this Messiah king that is extremely important not to miss. This Messiah king is very, very human as well as being very God. All you have to do is look at the lineage that Matthew chose to tell us. He could have eliminated some really scurrilous things in the lineage of Jesus, but he did not. He included people like Tamar, 
who through incest bore a son that is in the bloodline of Jesus. He included somebody like Rahab, who was a prostitute, who bore a son that was in the bloodline of Jesus. And yes, he included David. David, the one who was an adulterer and a murderer, and whose son Solomon was born of the wife whose husband David killed and had an affair with while he was alive. The bloodline of Jesus. Very, very human and very, very God. Because in the Gospel of Matthew and in other Gospels, we hear divine titles of this very human Jesus attached to him, like Son of God, like Son of Man. For those of you who are very biblically inclined to scholarship, you know the debate about those terms. Let me just say they're divine titles. The authors knew what they were saying when they said Son of God and Son of Man. They were saying Jesus was both earthy, human, and fully divine. So the first aspect of understanding Jesus from the perspective of Matthew is to acknowledge him as king, Messiah. The second part of understanding Matthew's perspective concerning Jesus is to acknowledge a theme in Matthew's gospel called the new community. Though that's not exactly how Matthew puts it. It's the way I'm putting it. Matthew is the only gospel, by the way, who uses the word ecclesia, which means gathered folks, and later, which is called ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. In other words, Matthew, early on, before any other gospel, uses this term to identify a particular Christian community of called out ones. So not only is he, his perspective that Jesus is the king, his perspective is that Jesus, as king, calls out a community of faithful followers. Now this community of faithful followers could also be described as a kingdom or kingdom followers. Because again, Jesus is the king according to Matthew, and he calls the citizens of his kingdom to follow him. What is true of this kingship, this community that follows Jesus? What is true of this kingship is that it does not challenge other human kingships by force. It doesn't ravage nations and put them under the threat of a sword. As a matter of fact, we don't often think of this, but it doesn't even challenge the legitimacy of human kingdoms. It doesn't say that one is a legitimate kingdom and that one is not. That's a legitimate king and that one is not. The Gospel of Matthew never says that, nor does Jesus ever say that. What he does is he says, my kingdom is not of this world. What he does is say, my kingdom does not come at the point of the sword. My kingdom comes by me reigning in the throne room of individual hearts in every kingdom all over the world. Not delegitimizing human kingdoms, 
but allowing people to enter a community of Christ followers, the kingdom of God, by faith in their hearts. Are there consequences to that? Absolutely. Christ followers, those who are part of this parallel kingdom, when they happen to be in a kingdom on this earth, they function differently than other people. They even challenge the norms of their individual kingdoms. They are salt and light. There's something else about this new community, this kingdom of God. And that's the passage I chose to have read this morning. It comes from the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are described in many ways, but I want to give you a a different perspective on the Beatitudes. Consider for the moment the Beatitudes to be the constitution of this kingdom. Churches have constitutions, the way we govern ourselves. Nations have constitutions, the way they govern themselves. Kingdoms, in this case, could have constitutions. And I'm calling the Beatitudes the constitution of the kingdom of God demonstrated in the life of Christ. You know that constitution well. We just read it. What does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And then this, oh my, in the Constitution this. Blessed are you, Christ followers in this kingdom. Blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and do all kinds of awful things to you because of me. Blessed are you because you stand in a lineage in this kingdom of prophets who went before you who were also persecuted, so blessed are you. By the way, in this constitution of the kingdom, there's no reference to individual rights. However important they may be for an earthly kingdom, in this constitution that reference does not exist. The emphasis is not on rights. The emphasis is on responsibility. If you're a Christ follower, if you're part of this kingdom, you have a responsibility. And as you follow that responsibility, you are blessed. But wait. Let me, let me be skeptical like many people are, perhaps some of you are right now. And you're saying, how can I be blessed when I'm persecuted? How can I be blessed when I'm merciful and other people are not? How can I be blessed when I'm a peacemaker and people are calling for war and violence? How can I be blessed when? Fill in the blank. Here's the harsh reality. To a certain extent, you can't. Not in this life. Oh, yes, there are blessings in this life. 
But if we look at the Beatitudes and suggest that this religious constitution for the kingdom of God has something to do with blessings now, that if we follow Christ in this way, prosperity will come. If we focus on that almost exclusively, we lapse into the heresy of the prosperity gospel. And yes, I said heresy. It is one of the greatest, in my opinion, greatest heresies of the American church, the prosperity gospel. The Beatitudes say nothing about blessings tomorrow because you invested today. They say in order to understand the blessing of God, you have to take on an eternal perspective. You have to invest in a responsibility a responsibility that is countercultural, a responsibility that is counterintuitive, a responsibility that doesn't pay dividends tomorrow, you invest in the kingdom of God, which is eternal. Thus, from that perspective, you can endure persecution with joy. You can be a peacemaker when others are not with joy. You can extend mercy when people don't extend it to you with joy because you have an eternal perspective. Signing on to this constitution requires an eternal perspective. Third, part of the perspective of Matthew concerning Jesus is this. He's unequivocally clear that Jesus is the hope for the whole world. The whole world. Even though he emphasizes things for a Jewish audience, it's abundantly clear. He understands it's for the whole world. As a matter of fact, sometimes in the Jewish context, in the first century, Many devout Jews had gotten to the place that they thought the promise concerning the Messiah was for them and exclusively for them. And Matthew breaks down that misinterpretation and reminds us that the Messiah is for everyone. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. Geology begins with Abraham, but the nation of Israel is only the carrier, the repository for the king of the universe. The revealed blessing to Abraham was personal. It was for Abraham. The revealed blessing to Abraham was national. It was for the people of God called Israel. But the revealed blessing to Abraham was also international. It was for the whole world. Your seed will bless the entire world. Matthew captures that in his gospel and emphasizes it over and again, perhaps in a way that some of the others do not, at least to the same extent. Let me say one more thing on this point before I move on. This is not a denial of the distinct heritage of Jesus as thoroughly Jewish. 
He was Jewish from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He followed the law with precision. He did everything a good Jew was supposed to do. He lived in that community. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He was Jewish, but at the same time, this Jewish Messiah who lived in an inclusive, tight community was the exclusive Savior of the world. You know, frequently, probably for good reason, Christianity is described as an exclusive religion. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is the most inclusive religion that ever was introduced to humanity. Birthed from a Jew, it begins to become very quickly a religion for every tribe and every nation all over the earth. That leads us to the final point, which is Matthew emphasizes the global mission of Jesus Christ. The global mission of Jesus Christ. It's not only a mission of Jesus, it's a responsibility of those who follow. Which is why Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is discipleship. Teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, another level of discipleship, and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's your responsibility, Christ followers, to share the good news. That is so uniquely Christian. Maybe not so much today, but back then for sure. Religions were regional. Religions were a part of isolated, small sometimes people groups. Each had their own gods. Religions were often national. But the religion of Jesus Christ is international for all people. Share it widely, Matthew says. What does all this mean for us? Yeah, there's the perspective of Matthew, and it will be similar to and different from the emphasis of Mark, Luke, and John. But what what is in this for us? I think at least these things. (laughs) I love this. I just love this. What it means for us is that we have an honest, earthy good news. We have a good news that emerged out of the desperate sinfulness of the human condition. We have a good news that emerged out of the royal lineage of David, which was a moral catastrophe. We have the good news that emerged out of incest and prostitution and all kinds of other hideous things. We have a good news that emerged out of deep sin. Do you see why I love that? Because I'm in that story. And so are you. Yeah, maybe your story's not identical with David. But your story is full of sin. 
And if you don't understand that, you're not even close to Jesus Christ yet. Your story is so sickening, full of sin, that it's an abomination to God. And God, through Jesus Christ, takes this earthy, sinful story with despicably sinful people like us and does marvelous things with it. Sometimes I am just absolutely overwhelmed by the grace of God that he would allow a sap like me to proclaim his good news. So what's in it for us? We're in it. He uses us. What does all this mean for us? It means that we also absolutely stunning. There's no parallel to this. We have a judge who is also our redeemer. Judges don't redeem. Judges judge. Saviors redeem. Jesus is both the judge and the redeemer, all wrapped up in one, both one as much as the other. And the way he judges, he judges our sin in the cross. He takes us, takes the judgment that we rightly deserve for our sins upon himself. And it's not just about us. It's about this whole world, my friends. He assumed the judgment of all evil. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's huge. It's global. And he took it all on himself and he died. And he redeemed through Assuming the righteous judgment of God upon himself, which was his judgment as well. He is both judge and redeemer. Find me another example of that. Where the judge is equally the redeemer. That is incredible good news. Third, we have a kingdom. A kingdom that we're invited to be in. That cannot fail. It cannot fail. It's impossible for it to fail. One of the main reasons it's impossible for it to fail is the eternal king of the universe is leading this kingdom. The other reason it's impossible for it to fail, think of the book of Revelation, which we've gone through in a whole semester. It is the eternal kingdom of God. It can't fail because it's eternal. There is no possibility of a failure in eternality. The eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ cannot fail. And finally, the good news and what it means for us is we have a righteous and a wise king that we serve. You know as well as I do, that we all long for a kingdom that cannot fail. And we all long for leaders who won't fail us. This kingdom cannot fail. This leader cannot fail us because he's the king of the universe. God in the flesh, who is eventually going to make everything new.
I look at your faces, and I know, like me, you long for that day when every pandemic is gone, when every sin is destroyed, when every temptation is dissolved, when every death is no more. And that day's coming because the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ will prevail. And right now, in the midst of whatever we're going through, right now, we have a taste of that invisible, eternal kingdom. And it is our hope. Let's pray. Lord, for the promises you give us in your word, we are so grateful. For the promises that you not only give us in your word, we're grateful, but we're grateful that the promises have been sealed by the activity of the coming of Jesus Christ. The promises have been sealed by your death and your resurrection. The promises have been sealed by the promises that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth because you conquered all sin and evil and we await the great day when the culmination of all things will result in Jesus as the peaceable king of the universe. We pray, Lord, as we wait, that you will make us faithful, faithful citizens of the kingdom. Not trying to tear down our own earthly kingdoms, but allowing you to reign in our hearts individually and through our individual loyalties, establishing your kingdom on earth. We thank you again for the promise. And we pray that you will reinforce it and remind us that it's true. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.